I have spent my life traveling across the universe, inside my mind. Through theoretical physics, I have sought to answer some of the great questions. But there are other challenges, other big questions which must be answered. And these will also need a new generation who are interested, engaged, and with an understanding of science. How will we feed an ever-growing population? Provide clean water, generate renewable energy, prevent and cure disease, and slow down global climate change. I hope that science and technology will provide the answers to these questions, but it will take people, human beings with knowledge and understanding, to implement these solutions. One of the great revelations of the space age has been the perspective it has given humanity on ourselves. When we see the Earth from space, we see ourselves as a whole. We see the unity, and not the divisions. It is such a simple image. With a compelling message, one planet, one human race. We are here together, and we need to live together, with tolerance and respect. We must become global citizens. I have been enormously privileged, through my work, to be able to contribute to our understanding of the universe. But it would be an empty universe indeed, if it were not for the people I love, and who love me. We are all time travelers, journeying together into the future. But let us work together to make that future, a place we want to visit. Be brave, be determined, overcome the odds. It can be done. What an idiot. Didn't even understand the importance of giant walls and um, keeping one nation first and really fighting to the death over the place that you live on a planet. Guy just didn't get it. And it's a shame we weren't able to change his mind before he expired. But anyway, I hope to see you out there in the stars somewhere down the road, Stephen Hawking. What an interesting figure that we were all alive with at the same time. A guy who, by all accounts, should have passed away long, long ago. Every moment that he was alive was just in itself kind of a miracle. And we all knew his voice as essentially a robot. And everyone kind of went, yeah, that fits. This guy who's almost too smart to inhabit a regular human body, it makes sense that he would just be... To a certain degree, just a brain being carried around by a bunch of otherwise somewhat useless cells on a set of wheels, and it just kind of made sense. And the fact that he was funny on top of that, what an interesting figure. Obviously, with Professor Blastoff, there was a bit of a tip of the cap there. My mom got me a brief history of time when I was in high school, and I tried to read it 
couldn't really understand it. And it was all the more bothersome because they said, this is a, a book for everybody. It's written in terms where if you think you're not a physicist or not smart enough, don't worry, you'll get it. And I definitely didn't get it. And then a few years later, I tried it again. And it was interesting to look at my notes and where I had, where I had uh, kind of underlined and things like that. And I think it, it made a huge impression on me, even if I didn't fully understand it. I'm sure I've mentioned on this show many of times the idea of, you know, the, a, a God character kind of being just someone that would push the start of an algorithm and then let it run. And it, that was, of course, something that he, and maybe he wasn't the first to ever posit that concept, but um, I think when you're a kid and you hear stuff like that, you're like, oh, that seems to make sense. That even if you were watching it from afar as a god, you, it would be a helpless, almost a sad feeling to watch calamity and despair and agony and all these things happen and just go, it's nothing I can do. I'm just watching it. I just put it in motion. Good luck. I don't know. I, I just like the way Stephen Hawking thought not to make it. Everyone takes when anyone goes away and, to, and makes it about them, but that's part of what makes anyone's life meaningful is that it did impact you, that it did affect you. You can say, oh, here's my story of so-and-so. Here's why they were great. Uh, when I was in college, and who knows if that's true. Maybe I'm just justifying what I'm saying, but I think there is something to that. If you... I don't know. Sometimes you see on like social media and stuff, people make it completely about themselves in a way where you're like, I think you missed the mark there. Uh, I had a friend in college who one time said, Chris Isaac's music is so smooth. It's so cool that if you play it, people think you're more charming. You're more interesting. You're more attractive to women, things of this nature. And that, that always seems so strange to me. Like, Oh yeah, I guess that does happen. And Stephen Hawking was so smart that just knowing who he was made you seem more intelligent. What an unbelievable impact to have that if you just said his name correctly. I would see comedians all the time. So one time it was a well-known comedian doing jokes about Stephen Hawking's and no one in the crowd said anything. And I was just like, this is baffling. Another guy did jokes about him and kept calling him Stephen Hawkins. I've seen it all. And so there's this weird feeling as that's happening, like, oh, this is a person who's trying to appear very bright, and they're missing the mark in the silliest of ways. All you gotta do is have his name right, and you'll seem a little bit more intelligent. And, and comedy, I guess, is so far from the commentary on life, the fact that he had sort of the blueprints or a fundamental understanding that could sort of rival Einstein to some degree and be like, I think I'm picking up where you left off and here's the next frontier of it and with black holes and all of his research and looks into that and how he would challenge his own findings and years later come out and say, I, I was wrong. All my stuff on black holes, it was wrong, which is such, that's what's the best thing about science or one of the best things is to say, I know we're all believing this, but I have found new evidence to the contrary and I just think watching comedians, they have some value, a tiny, tiny value. Obviously, if they had more impact, society probably would be in a better position than it currently is. But everyone currently adamant that their voice matters all day, every day, chiming things out into the abyss, just throwing it out there. Here's my two cents. And if you saw the theory of everything, they you see the, the journey that Stephen Hawking had 
as far as like his illness overtaking his physical body. But I don't know that they fully touched on that he went a year, a calendar year without being able to speak or communicate. It just had deteriorated from like someone, you know, on a chalkboard or then he had uh, the, the graph where he could kind of look and someone would say this letter and then he would spell out words that and then pretty soon no more movement an inability to even screech i think for a period he had been able to just do this weird like cat screech and that was how he communicated with people and then a year of just kind of radio silence so you really have to choose your words if at the end of that year they give you a little computer device and say now you can talk again but it's going to be laborious and i don't think enough of us take and appreciate even what i'm saying right now all this babbling utterly useless it could have been more concise and more thought out and we all do that we don't really take and appreciate just how unique it is to have the ability to express thoughts at all times to go a year and and to be someone that has something to say to have an insight into how the universe works and not be able to say anything that's something most of us will never have to comprehend and what i mean the, the sort of meditative qualities within that, how his brain must have stayed occupied. And even if you're furious, you can't even pound your fist against anything. You can't even do like an angry blink. You're just sitting there, trapped, stuck. What a life. So anyway, <laughs> Stephen Hawkins, wherever you are out there, um, hopefully, hopefully this show will be... Um, try to carry on that message there from the beginning of just trying to figure it out and be good to each other and um, maybe do this planet some level of justice. But Or let's keep building walls and wearing stupid hats and really fighting amongst each other. That part's going great. All right, that's enough of me rambling on. Let's get into some hardcore chatting. This is part two with Rachel Chalk talking more about the little mammals and her research and life and all of that stuff with more Mojave Red from Indian Wells. I really enjoyed it. I hope you do too. Here's Part two. Rachel Chalk. I've started now both episodes by saying your name. I don't, I don't think I normally do that. Where are you from originally? I'm from the Bay Area. I'm from Redwood City. Ooh, beautiful area. It is very nice. Have you been up north into like Humboldt and that? You know, I've been when I was a kid, but not in a long time. And so it's high on my list of places to get back to. It's unbelievable. It's a place that you're like, oh, I... I don't even know if I've seen this on a postcard. It's so pretty. Right. You, like you hear about stuff like that, like these giant dense forests and then rolling white capped waves right off the ocean coming to meet so it. So good. It's unreal. It's unreal. And I would guess growing up around just the Bay or like Redwood City, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. was it be, you're, you got your bunny at home Yep. and then you're out in nature. Would you play outside a lot? Yeah, I played outside a lot. Um, we went camping a lot when I was a kid, so mostly around California we had we had like an old VW van first and then like a little RV so mm-hmm. yeah that was like family vacation was going camping so like a kind of a typical idyllic american experience I think it really was yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's fun I, I guess like when you get into the study of any particular animal is there also a biology part of it if you had to like examine them and dissect them and things like that yeah i haven't i haven't had to dissect a pocket mouse um i was the teaching assistant for an ornithology class at ucla and had to like lead a dissection of a bird and i was like ooh, i've never dissected a bird before (laughs) so got a friend that sort of knew what she was doing and got a bird and then spent hours just like 
taking it apart and figuring out how that works because sort of on paper I get it but I haven't had to get too like into it with the mice it's more you know about what they're doing while they're alive (laughs) (laughs) thankfully I struggle with that so much that maybe it comes from like reading Animal Farm which I think is Mm -hmm. so much more um relevant now people bring up 1984 a lot but that feeling that some animals are more equal than others Mm -hmm. is very much that's humans exactly i mean we will take other animals and dissect them we'll test our shampoos on them we'll give them all these illnesses and then see if we can cure them and and with no regard that they might be like hey i'm just trying to exist and be in the same plane as you in the same reality and dimension yeah that sounds like hippie stuff but if we are just sharing this planet and to a large degree we create um like ecosystems that are friendlier or we try to care about what we're doing Mm -hmm. for them and maybe the only way to know that is to dissect them and see like oh that was hard on their liver right let's stop (laughs) dumping that in the water but the fact that we do all that stuff makes it so weird that we can like drive around and pretend like we're here because we're the good guys right yeah and with the like dissection stuff where the pocket mice we only dissect them after they've died to figure out what was the cause of death or um there's a captive breeding reintroduction program for them so it's really to make sure like their captive life is good for them and also to learn a little bit more about them. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, in terms of like lab studies and stuff and just raising animals and doing weird things and cutting them open, I'm, that's a very different part of like the biological sciences. And, and when I tell people that I work with mice, they're like, Oh, you like kill them and cut them open. I'm like, no, it's the other <laughs> way around. I want to know what they do in nature, not, you know, I give them fluorescent tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I guess that is kind of mean, but they do. Okay. That seems gentle enough. And you know, when you see like mountain lions with a bracelet or right. a tracking thing mm-hmm. or the collar, yeah. even, it doesn't seem like that animal is just beside itself with rage. They right. never like sit there and go, well, I can't live now. Yeah. And there are definitely regulations on what you can do, how long you can leave those things on and studies that you have to sort of show that it's not going to negatively impact them before you're allowed to do it, which I think is really important because mm-hmm. it's like we can get information from them, but you want to make sure those animals are still behaving naturally and able to have sort of their normal <laughs> full existence (laughs) so i think you're in a good spot with the small mammals because if you say gave a lot of time to like mountain lions or wolves Mm -hmm. and you finally released the last one and their population was at a level that couldn't be dramatically impacted immediately Mm -hmm. and you kind of like nod and take it in and go i did it my life's work right and then we're attacked by a mountain lion (laughs) yeah That'd be a rough way to go out. Like you might even be smiling about it. Like ah, good for you. <laughs> but that won't like happen the with the grizzly mice. man movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think it'll happen with the mice. The only thing is, like, some of these mice can carry diseases that you want to be really careful about. Not yeah, getting. like the hantavirus yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Ugh. So, um, you know, that's something that we joke about a little bit, but do take seriously and are you guys out there in like hazmat suits and things like that? No, we're not. It, it's more like. It's more of a problem if you're in an enclosed area, so like in a cabin where they've been living under the floor and like pooping right. and peeing all over yeah. the place. So in the wild, because it is so open, it's not as much of a concern. But when we trap that those species of mice, we just want to be careful. Like you don't get bit by them. You don't get like their poop and their pee on your skin. Yeah. Um, you're not like breathing, <laughs> <laughs> like holding the mouth mm. up to your face and just like breathing it in. So, Smell that pocket yeah. mouse. Mm. <laughs> the pocket mice don't carry it, but deer mice can. And we catch those guys too, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Are you wearing latex gloves? Um, We put them into like a Ziploc bag and then just like pick them up through the bag and can look at them um, that way. And so wait a second, like you pop their little head out through an opening in the bag. No, you um, you grab them by the back of the neck. You scruff them. And so you can just like 
pinch them and then you turn the bag inside out. And so it's sort of like you're holding one side of the bag and they're on the other side of the oh, bag. Oh, I see. Yeah. So you don't have that like skin to skin contact, but mm-hmm. um, then you can just, if that bag gets dirty, you just throw it out and get a new they one. They have like the little doll eyes, black eyes. So mm-hmm. they're not looking at you like, what are you doing? Unfortunately, I think they're sort of blinded by the light because oh. we have these headlamps on and they're, you know, used to being into the darkness. And so then you're looking at them and they're just sitting there sort of in shock and then you try to like put them down near some cover so they can recover a little bit and then they run off (laughs) (laughs) do they when you put them down they like shake it out and go no one's gonna believe me some of them do we we joke that's like little alien abductions for them especially when we mark them or put ear tags on them and then they're just like what the hell just (laughs) happened do you guys have discussions about that or people that do you think like do your line of work more inclined to believe like this matches a lot of alien abduction stories (laughs) I mean, I guess I haven't thought about it too deeply. Um, If I was going to get abducted by an alien, probably the middle of the night in the desert is a good place for it to happen. (laughs) Sometimes when I throw fish back, I, and this is so dumb, but it makes me laugh. And I think just on the off chance that they could speak English, I think they'd appreciate it. But I will like take them off the hook and then look at them and go, I'm not God, and throw them back. (laughs) Hey, that's fun. Yeah. (laughs) Like their God, you know, is probably more of a fish than a human. Yeah. But they'd go back in the water. People go, where were you? I'm not going to believe this. There's something up there. There's a whole different plane of existence. I was there. Was it God? No, it said specifically it was not God. So who knows? (laughs) Yeah. So it was definitely an alien. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that must be so. I'm trying to picture like the first person from the mouse. You know, you go in in a... You've been in tunnels. You've been in enclosed spaces. You're not yeah. scared of them. But right. this one sounds different. It's got an echo. Yeah. And suddenly and it like, opens up. There's all up. this food in here, but what is going on? Yeah. Why can't I get out? You can't scratch. You can't dig through right. it. And suddenly like the sinking feeling, then it opens in this bright light. And yeah. now you're being levitated up. And, and you're like, like in a plastic bag. <laughs> <laughs> That's intense for them. It is intense. But, you know, they do it like multiple times a night. They go back in that <laughs> trap. And so I see, I think like, yeah, it must not be so scarring for them. That yeah. They'll just be back in there. Maybe they have really short memories. And so they're like, ah, again, how did this happen? <laughs> but they I'm, seem to be doing all right. That conversation recently about like consciousness is just because we are able to stack memories mm. and access them. And therefore, like they color and give some context to our entire life mm-hmm. where you know you throw fish back and they come right back and attack right the hook again and you go what are you, what are you doing yeah like and, i already threw you back out Get and away. that doesn't always happen some of them jet right and some of them just when they hit the the hook or the fly that scares them enough where they're like oh, i'm getting that i don't know what that was that yeah. was unpleasant and right. they jet so right. like that's a reaction but it's not a memory so for the mouse to like go back to that box yeah it seems like there wouldn't be a consciousness attached to that. I don't think so. I don't think they think, I'm going to go in, and even though I'm going to get handled <laughs> and put in this bag and release, like it's worth it to get. I don't think they're weighing those costs and yeah. benefits, and I don't think that they're probably aware of like what the next step is after they go in that little box. But where does like trep- trepidation come from? Because do they, you know, you watch them, like when they... Um, Pagus, did you say? What was the one in Chile? Oh, Degus. Degus. Yeah. When, when they peek out, like mm-hmm. there's certainly a, a fear. It's fear of predators for sure. And is that like instinctually in them yeah, or from so. watching it happen? Because they, maybe they can talk to each other and just be like, look, there's stuff out there. Well, certainly like 
groundhogs and prairie dogs, they have communication and they warn each other. So they have different signals if there's like a raptor coming in versus a snake coming in. So they have their ways to tell each other, like, this is the danger. This is specifically what it is. And then all of the animals know, like, okay, if it's a hawk or something, we have to get in the burrow. But if it's a snake, they come and they attack it and chase it away. Yeah. And so they certainly can tell the difference. And some animals do have some memories because sometimes like ones that have warned them before, they're more likely to be vigilant when that animal is around to sort of like pay them back for that. Um, And so, yeah, there's memory of like who was helpful in the past. And so you'll, you're inclined to be more helpful in the future. So yeah, I don't know, maybe, and maybe they do have like a little bit more of a memory than we give them credit for. (laughs) I would love to, well, I don't want to experience the existence of being a pocket yeah, mouse. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> but it'd be nice if you could... That's got to be the next level of dreams and or... It almost sounds like a Black Mirror thing to like grab their... Whatever it is to be and mm-hmm. put yourself in there. Yeah. And just see yourself running around real close to the ground like, oh, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm a pocket right. mouse. I... That, bird brain documentary I brought up about the birds um, crows not only have a great memory but they'll share it mm-hmm. so this guy uh, put on this mask of like a Neanderthal this was on a college campus a lot of like trees surrounding kind of an open area mm-hmm. and he uh, wore this mask and then they went and captured like three birds and just kept them for a couple days and then released the birds and then those birds evidently told all the other crows so anytime after that he would go out with the mask on all the birds in the trees would start like yeah. cawing and stuff like, hey, hey, heads up. There's the guy that yeah. takes birds. But it went on for like seven years. Right. And he was like generations of birds. Birds totally. that weren't born were warning other birds about this. Yeah. That's exciting that somehow that exists. You know, that that is like communicative. That is, hey, heads up. There are these things out there. Right. No, it's crazy because even if those birds hadn't experienced it, some other bird told them about it somehow so they knew how to respond appropriately when that guy yeah. came back in the mask and you're just like that's nuts i know yeah what is that language that you would be like <laughs> and it, like what's the context of them warning each other about this threat that they haven't experienced in years like when does that come up is there some sort of yeah critical time in there when they're young where it's like okay let me tell you all of the things you need to look out for <laughs> the neanderthal mask is one of them you know <laughs> like why is that yeah it's crazy and all the different levels that, that humans, you know, if you told a child that, some kids could be easily convinced to become racist or become whatever just mm-hmm. by telling, hey, every generation of ours, look at all these people behind right. us. We've always felt we're scared of this group. Right. But we have the capacity at times to like, as a kid in that same scenario, to listen to your crow father and go, you know, son, that, that guy takes birds. Mm-hmm. And a kid might go, okay, what's bad about that? Right. You just don't want to be taken. Why? Bah! And I think that's a very human thing to like ask the, mm-hmm. beyond that. Right. Okay. So I'm supposed to be scared of this thing or I'm supposed to hate this skin tone or whatever yeah. it might be. It's asinine. Do you think that like animals have like a rebellious teenage phase then where it's like, <laughs> oh, you're telling me to look out for that coyote, whatever, I'll show you. <laughs> I think uh, on some of the animal documentaries, don't they do stuff like, or the, the mother will like grab them by the scruff right. as sort of like a, damn it, I keep telling you yeah, this. Yeah. Don't wander out there. Right. Where they're just like being playful and ramb- rambunctious and the parents are mm-hmm. aware that there's an actual real danger there. Yeah. Because yeah. I think coyotes will do this where they, like one of them will show up and a dog will see it and it'll look kind of playful and the coyote will turn and run away and then the dog will chase after oh. it and then 
they round a corner and there are four coyotes there. And then the dog goes, you've got me. <laughs> and that as a puppy would be one of those, you would imagine like the mother being like, do not right. follow these damn coyotes. Yeah. <laughs> They're just tricking you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think that for, I think that for a lot of those animals though, since there is still natural selection acting on them, it's like the ones that don't listen to the warning are the ones that are probably going to get eaten by the predator. Yeah. Whereas with humans, it's a really different sort of social dynamic where there are no consequences now. I know texting is bad and people crash their cars or they drive too fast over ice. Um, but you can believe the earth is flat. You can believe insane conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. You can refuse to learn any level of math or even how to read. Right. And be fine. Yeah. Like, we'll just carry you through. And by, by we, I mean the collective group, right. whether that's technology or people going, oh, heads up. And, move, you know, you're walking right into, like, an elevator shaft. Hey, it's out of order. Oh, thank you. Or it's like, oh, if you, you know, walk into an elevator shaft, it's that company's responsibility to put up signs and yeah. put up barriers. And so it's not like you weren't paying attention and being stupid. Like, mm-hmm. society sort of has to make sure that you're protected when you are being that Yeah, way. even if you crash through the caution tape and you fall mm-hmm. and suddenly you're in a net and they go, yeah, because it happens all the time. Right. That's how dumb people are. Right. And we keep saving them. Yeah. We're so lucky in that capacity. It's unparalleled. Yeah, it really is. So I think that I think that that's like a really big difference between the animal world where there are like very serious consequences to yeah. doing some of these things. And then the human world where most of the time you're going to be pretty safe. <laughs> Yeah, when you see, I'm trying to think of a situation where I've seen an animal just make the slightest mistake and have it work out poorly. I guess a bird flying into a window or something like that. Those are tough, but maybe they bounce back out of it. I don't know. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. And so there are things like people are studying how birds actually perceive windows to try to figure out how can we manufacture windows that birds see as a solid surface instead of something that looks like they can just fly through, Mm -hmm. Um, which is good (laughs) (laughs) i guess i was just saying like oh the dumb ones you know are covered by society but i think that when we're we're sort of like tricking animals by what we're engineering like it's better to figure out how can we make this so they don't perceive it as water and try to lay their eggs on it when it's a glass windshield or something (laughs) like that i was just thinking of a campaign idea you guys could use which is get a lot of footage of idiots and then say (laughs) if we can protect these people We should be able to protect these birds or small rodents. I love it. (laughs) I'm not sure we would change the minds of the people that are anti-protecting those animals, though. That's true, because they're the ones walking into the elevator shaft. Potentially being the idiots. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I drive a forklift, and I matter more than that rodent. (laughs) Right. Not to disparage forklift drivers. I in college I tried to get a job driving a forklift and I crashed over some oh, boxes. No. It didn't go great. I had never driven the one that just has the single wheel in the back and they mm. are squirrely. Oh wow. And I it was just all over the place and I smashed into some stuff and the guy was like, eh, it happens all the time. <laughs> and then they called me like a couple months later and were like, Hey, it turns are you still looking for work? And you're like, Yeah, I don't think you should hire me. <laughs> I, I was I was doing something else by that time, but I was like I, yeah, that was my first thought was yeah, I don't think you want to do this. I was pretty bad at it. <laughs> Clearly was not a natural. <laughs> so you, what did you get your undergrad in? Um, I got my undergrad in environmental science and biology. So I thought I wanted to be environmental science and policy major and then did that for a couple of years and then took a biology class. And I was like, oh, this is really exciting and learned about animal behavior. And I was like, oh, this is really exciting. Um, but at that point, I was sort of like, 
on track to graduate with an environmental science degree. So finished that up and then did a master's in biology after that at the same wow. school. Yeah. And, and now you're at UCLA. Is that where you've done all of them? No, I went to um, Clark University in Massachusetts for my undergrad and master's degree. Wow. All the way across the country. Yeah. Yeah. How was that? It was great. I loved it. Um, it was a small liberal arts school. And that was sort of what I was looking for for undergrad. Mm-hmm. And so um, <clears throat> they had a big emphasis on undergrad research. And so I like got involved with one of the labs there. I studied stickleback fish and got to go to... Did you say sickle or stickle? Stickle. Stickleback yeah. fish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which are one of these model organisms for evolution and ecology. But um, I got to go up to British Columbia and Alaska and actually observe them in these lakes that they live and look at their mating behaviors, which was pretty exciting. The stickleback live in cold areas, I guess? Yeah, they're pretty widespread. So even Northern California has some stickleback fish. And why are they uh, like a shining example of evolution? Well, they're one of these unique species where uh, the ones that live in the ocean are actually thought to be really similar to the ancestors of all of the ones that live in the lakes. And so um, that transition from saltwater to freshwater happened like when the glaciers receded and so they like got trapped in these lakes and then have been evolving in these isolated lakes for tens of thousands of years. Um, and so you can kind of like track evolution almost because you have the ancestor that's still alive mm-hmm. um, and then you have all of these different populations from these different like ecological conditions and see how they're different from each other and that's awesome yeah yeah it suddenly made me think that your worldview might be one of having seen the residue of ancient glaciers and fish uh mute not mutate adapting and Mm -hmm. evolving to fit those surroundings that like we're and it comes back all the time that we we say this to ourselves that we're such a small sliver that it goes on and on but to take a vested interest in like, I, I want to care for these little rodents, these little mm-hmm. mammals, that you could be fully invested, have your whole heart into it, but also kind of be like, ah, but if we fail, life goes on. The planet keeps spinning. Is that kind of within the re- realm of you? I think so. You? Yeah. I mean, I don't think, like, I honestly don't think if the Pacific pocket mouse went extinct, humans would notice the difference. Mm-hmm. But then I do think that it's important that because we're sort of contributing to their decline, I kind of feel this responsibility to do something about it. And so that's where that, I guess, yeah. comes from. But I, yeah, I guess I do, I do sort of think that like the world will keep going, whether these animals are on it or not, but we have the opportunity to keep them along for the ride. Yeah. Do you, do you look at the stickleback and go, you know, if I were around back then, I, <laughs> there would be so many more of them or there would be more lakes or is that? The stickleback um, are not, usually like of conservation concern it's more of this interesting system that we can learn a lot from and I definitely uh became a lot more interested in them after seeing them in the wild because most people keep them in lab populations and in captivity and stuff like that um and that's great but then going out and like actually watching them you know, the males build these nests and then they court the females and then try to get the females to lay their eggs in their nests. And then the males will protect the nest and protect the babies um, from intruders and other other fish that are trying to eat them. It's pretty cool to see like this tiny fish just living its life, doing its thing, uh-huh. being good parents, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> it gives you some perspective on them. And like, yeah, this is a pretty cool organism, even if I didn't have any sort of thoughts or care about it really yeah. much before now i um i should have told you this earlier i do a lot of fracking and <laughs> <laughs> it is lucrative personally yeah personally i yeah. got a little rig i head uh-huh. out on the weekends uh-huh. 
It's like fr- your side, your side, j- yeah. your side job. <laughs> my friend Michelle Balloon has this joke about how her and her husband don't always agree because she likes to do small batch fracking. <laughs> <laughs> and he, um, but I, I'm one of those, pe- and I think this is where people that are that, and they're typically very religious, they're conservative financially, and probably a few other ways that are maybe more tied to race. Um, but just thinking of like this alcohol soaked face, this pig face. <laughs> <laughs> this kind of like drinking scotch and smoking cigars and I frack. I think a lot of times they equate um, natural selection is just strictly not only just survival of the fittest, but like this planet is competitive. Oh, yeah. On every level. And so rats, we don't have to worry about them. They, in spite of all our best efforts, they'll keep going. Right. Cockroaches, thriving. Yeah. Any, all these things that we are in strict competition to a certain degree of like biomass with Mm -hmm. ants, bacteria. Right. When we think of things that are dying off, I think me and my fracking buddies kind of go, that's what's going to happen. It's a competitive world. And pandas, if you can't have sex with each other, you're going (laughs) to die. You can't be so soft. And so is, is that a, a feeling that you have to combat a little bit? Yeah, there's a little bit of that out there. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of that out there um, and not necessarily stuff that I see in my day to day. Um, But, you know, if we if we do kind of follow that to the extreme, then what are we looking at? We're looking at a world with people, rats, cockroaches and ants like (laughs) that sounds horrible. So maybe that is where we would be going, but like I don't think anyone actually wants to live on that planet. No, absolutely not. I want those pandas. Right. I want the soft things. Yeah. yeah. And just, it's like, but I also love underdogs. I turn on a sporting event, whoever's losing mm-hmm. or just looks like they have the least amount of talent. Right. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> That's why the Olympics are so good, right? Yeah. Like this person. Uh, yeah. I there's a that's a very human feeling. But I wonder if some people like the fracking guys, if they turn it on and go, that person looks like they were engineered in a lab. Right. Their muscles are insanely well yeah. defined. I'm rooting for them. Right. Right. Eh, that seems weird. I'm sure there is that. But like I think with a lot of the fracking and stuff, I don't know if it's like necessarily caring or not about the animal but it's more like if this animal is endangered then i have to change what i'm doing around them and i don't want to have to do that Mm -hmm. and so i get the sense that yeah like if you want to protect this animal somewhere else that's totally fine but like here is where i make my money and that's where i have a problem with it totally i mean that that seems on any level where a person is presented with of some aspect of themselves that they that society or anyone else finds to be lacking they never want to change it right everyone else should change i say those words i'm abrasive i have no filter right that's the worst phrase ever said like no one yeah. was ever impressed by someone that didn't have a filter right right why is that a good thing yeah you're allowed to change it just i think it stings people to think that like they would be asked to change right. and certainly when you have a lot of financial ties mm-hmm. you're like i'm not pulling up my drill rig because your animals are in danger right. or your drinking water or that whole town or all their children. Yeah. I'm making money and yeah. I like me. So what are the risks to the pocket mice? Cause I think of like dirt bikes going through the mm-hmm. desert and fuel being leaked or people shooting up old junk. But the, that, I'm describing the desert where I grew up. Yeah. Just like, you know, rednecks and things like that. But those are small amounts of things. There wasn't fracking back then. Mm-hmm. Or there weren't oil spills. So, so what are the dangers? Mostly it's um, habitat loss to development. So when you put up new homes and not usually just a single home, but like a whole housing development, right? And you just bulldoze that whole 
hillside and valley and whatever, there's not much habitat for them. And it also separates where they're living. So you could have a little patch over here and then you have this housing development and a little patch over there. And now instead of one large population, you have these two tiny patches. And so either one of those is more likely to go extinct. And then once one goes out, the other one is more likely to go out. And so those are the sorts of things that are really dangerous for like not just the pocket mice, but the other the other small mammals. Yeah. The other smammals. <laughs> <laughs> but and that must be so tough if, you know, shady lakes coming mm-hmm. fall of whenever. Right. And then you guys do some investigating and go, man, there's this whole population, like a high density of right. this specific animal mm-hmm. or whatever um species that lives here. We're gonna request that you don't build here. Money's always going to win out, isn't it? Yeah. And so they um, development is required to do these environmental assessments before they build or before they're necessarily given permission to build. And so either they might have to move where they're doing or they might have to just pay some money into a mitigation bank for that species, depending on sort of what the agreement is. Um, but sometimes, too, then we might come in and actually trap out those animals and then move them to another place Mm -hmm. and so it's like if it's a really endangered species and it's deemed that they're going to build there no matter what um, we might go in and do like a translocation so you take them and you move them to an area that's protected for really yeah so when i think of like an old like they do this with like double wide trailers and you see them like the wide load on semis Mm -hmm. going on the road how do you pick them up? You trap all of them and just move you them? You try it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so that, those poor little guys that you left behind. Like I was eating. Where is everyone? <laughs> I'm just good at not getting trapped. And now I have to live alone. Yeah. Ah. Well, and then you get bulldozed. Right? <laughs> so it's like in your best interest at that point to go into the trap. But yeah, like moving them. Um, my friend worked on one where the water district had to sort of create these new like catchment areas. And so they had to get rid of all of the vegetation and make those like areas where groundwater can seep in and so you're like that's a really good thing that's really important but all of these endangered animals are living there what are we going to do and so they actually moved them to this other area that was um, protected habitat unfortunately not all of them do really well when you pick them up and move them obviously it's pretty dramatic for them all right go dig some new tunnels watch out for the new snakes and everything else right and don't just like freak out and run away (laughs) Whew, that I mean, but then that becomes what we were just talking about. Like the cockroaches, no problem. They right. just scurry. Oh, like, yeah. yeah, all right. I live here now. Great. Yeah, right. So yeah, you got to have a little bit of that. I guess we all do. I mean, that's so ingrained in humans. Like, and then when everything was taken, they pressed on. Right. Those are like stories. resilient yeah. stories. Yeah. yeah. Which I do. Li- I mean, of course, they're like, oh, wow, they found a way to go mm-hmm. on. They lost mm-hmm. all these things and they kept going. But that. It's like when on survival shows, they're keeping a fire going, just that little ember. That's mm-hmm. humanity, I feel like. It's just that notion. And I know people say now, like, such a tiny amount of the surface mass of, or surface area of land on Earth is developed. But I think some of that includes uninhabitable places yeah. or mountains. When right. we're talking about, like, fertile sort of valleys and areas like that, we're, we're encroaching on, like, a pretty high... Oh, we've done a good job, like, taking <laughs> over that land, yeah, for a long time, too. Um, and now, even more so, it's, like, these areas where it doesn't even seem suitable, like, they're floodplains of rivers, and it's like, oh, well, we now have these engineering tools yeah. to change the way that the river moves, and we'll build right here. But then you see, like, when these huge storms come through, like 
our engineering wasn't quite good enough and now people are in danger their homes are in danger and you're just like because you shouldn't have built there to begin with yeah i remember the hearing probably around the same time as the buffalo were all going to go out that alaska you know they'd signed sort of these charters or kind of there was something to the effect of we're not going to drill we're going to mm-hmm. keep alaska beautiful and then remembering when like Sarah Palin, who represents that state, was running, and people would be chanting, drill, baby, yeah. drill. It was the weirdest feeling. Like it, It's disheartening that they're allowing that to happen. Even more like uh, insurmountable of a dread feeling that they're chanting. Right. That you could convince people to just be like, go do it! Yeah. Go, you know, and they'd be wearing ExxonMobil hats. And and, it, and just like the, the fervor around that is so strong. Yeah. Whereas the people that are like, don't drill... Most of us aren't chanting about that. Like we feel it strongly, <laughs> right. but not like I'm going to go out and rally mm-hmm. like around this. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's something to. I think that's a commonality in um, in people knowing that their point. They're operating from a position of um, I don't know all the facts, and I'm not prepared mm-hmm. to. But I can sure as hell chant right in your face. Right. I can right. I can wave this thing around <laughs> at you. And you go, yeah, I'm sorry, I don't want to raise my voice here, but this and this and right. this. And they go, ah, drill, baby, drill. And yeah. Oh, th- that's who you're fighting. They're yeah. like, I got to put food on the table for my family. I need a job. Like, but that's humanity. Yeah. It just keeps spreading and it all needs a job and it all doesn't care where it comes from and put that pipeline in. And, right. Oh, this is too, I've, I've made it too negative. <laughs> <laughs> it's a slippery slope. <laughs> <laughs> it must be. I mean... Does it seem like though that we'll because we talked you talked about earlier like building up and having mm-hmm. a little bit more of a an awareness of how cities are constructed yeah. and like can we realistically get to a population place where we say that part will not be infringed on we'll just keep going up but we are not going to go out into those beautiful lands I hope so I don't know I think that city planning like if you if you start planning sooner maybe you can do those things but it's more like just sprawling out as mm-hmm. soon as people have you know the means and there's more land and people do want land around them so they want to go to a place that has more space but they want to turn it into a yard like that's really hard to fight back against yeah and I like yards I think yeah. there's something very like pleasant about trees and mm-hmm. grass and mm-hmm. you know but people would go oh man think yeah you got to water it right and you got all these things that add to this footprint um, a friend of mine moved to a place and there's this beautiful like kind of open area and a person of considerable means when they passed away um, donated money to make it be a preserve mm-hmm. but I think those have a time limit on them like the money of that runs out I would sometimes guess. they do sometimes it's an endowment so they like invest the money and they're supposed to just use like the profits from that so hopefully it goes on for a really long time mm-hmm. um but th- what a great thing to do what wow. a like nice legacy to have those that's where i my hope gets bolstered mm-hmm. is i think humans with money and it's tough because if uh, me and my fracking buddies were conditioned one way we don't suddenly like turn around and go right. well you know what now i really do want to leave something behind yeah but it does happen. And so hopefully that will be the savior is that money is the root of all this evil, but it also is like the antidote maybe. Yeah. And there's a lot of new money now um, and young money. Now. Oh, don't I know this fracking pays <laughs> fracking, very <right>. well. <laughs> and a lot of people that are like looking to do good things with their money. So that's hopeful for sure. Yeah. What do you want to be doing once your PhD is done? And I mean, do you have like a grandiose idea of, 
saving or having like a wildlife preserve named after you or like a specific species or nothing like that crazy? Um, I guess, <laughs> I guess from a purely selfish point of view, I'm looking for a job that comes next, <laughs> <laughs> which would continue on the path of like hopefully saving species and having an income maybe. That would be nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that would be awesome. Most people that get things named after them discover them. So I'm not necessarily on the path of discovering new species. Um, oh, you trap all these things. It's you true. Know? It's true. You're on your way to, to I think, um, discovering the uh, fluorescent mouse. Yeah. <laughs> Gene gets <laughs> adapted. Was it like absorbs into their body? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Little glowing box right. mice. What have pocket I done? mice. <laughs> That'd be so fun to watch at night. They're just zooming around. It'd be like a light show. Yeah, actually, that would be great. And maybe I should make that happen. It would make yeah. it so much easier to watch them at night. Yeah, and I, would it... Would the owls be able to see that? I guess they probably would. Yeah, I think that owls are pretty good at that because they usually, um, they can pick up like fluorescence in the urine, in like mouse urine. Whoa. And find them based on like where they're marking and where they're living. So and this so, would be really terrible for the mice. It would probably be very, very bad for them. <laughs> Imagine waking up as an owl and just, am I seeing what I think I'm yeah. seeing? Like, am I in heaven? <laughs> And now we attack, attack that bobcat. Look at this. Yeah. <laughs> it all paid off. <laughs> That'd be really fun. Because you just have all these things zooming around, like pick one and go chase after right. it. It oh, would be like man. living in a video game. Yeah. Like Tron for owls. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you want to get a job and then ideally like wand waved over you. What kind of job and what sort of like stability or would you travel a lot still? Where would you be? I mean, so ideally in the perfect world, I'd love to stay in Southern California, continue doing a lot of what I'm doing. So conservation research, mm -hmm. working with mammals. I do love the small mammals. I wouldn't be opposed to working with larger mammals, but yeah, yeah. Kind of like continuing on what I've been working on. Cool. Yeah. I guess with ecology, it kind of sometimes circles back to like the same few things of like dread or, you know, do you feel yeah, like you're fighting this uphill battle? Right. But what makes you excited about it? Ooh, um, I think when it does work and when you do see success stories, you're just like, yeah, this can totally happen. And so that is exciting. And so like with the Pacific Pocket Mouse, I got involved in this project um, right when this captive breeding program was beginning. And so all of these different organizations are coming together. So from the federal level, from the state level, from the local level to like work together to protect the species. Um, and so this reintroduction that's been going on with these animals that were born and raised in captivity. Um, in the last couple of years, they've released the first ones back out into the wild. And so those animals are actually doing really well. They're reproducing, like they're forming this new population because there were only three populations of Pacific pocket mice and now we have four. And so like, that's really awesome to see that actually yeah. happening um, and people being excited about it. Uh, and so I think that there are, there are cases where, you know, what we're doing and people collectively caring about this can certainly work um, awesome. on a small scale, right? Like the pocket mouse is a pretty small scale. <laughs> <laughs> but cool though. And like, if it became something that like you decided my whole life is going to be pocket mice, mm -hmm. do you think it would get, you know, they'd say, I think you're good. we've got like 200,000 of them thriving in, variety, in right. a variety of areas of locations. Is there a feeling when you're on that path to go, but it'll be better when we have 400,000? <laughs> I think that like, so with the 
um, with the Endangered Species Act, you're asked to like lay out goals. And so it's sort of like once you reach those goals, you can delist the species. And mm-hmm. so I know that there's always contention around like, you know, bringing the pandas from endangered to threatened or something like that. And some people are like, no, it's still too soon. Um, but I think it's a great when you're able to do that because it means that everything you've been doing is successful. Yeah. And so I would say like if we do have those 10 populations of pocket mice, I wouldn't be like, no, we need more. It's like, yeah they can be threatened now and we'll still have protections for them. But like, it's great if we don't actually have to worry about them and manage them. Um, And so I think that that's like definitely a measure of success is when they're not endangered anymore. I guess it'd be kind of nice too to move on from them, you know, because you go into a school and you help a group of kids Mm -hmm. and they all start passing their tests and things are good and you leave to go help another. Some kid will come to the door and be like, but Miss Rachel, what about us? Right. You know, I have to leave. I'm sorry. Whereas with the mice, you can move on and be like, all right, I'm going to work on some sort of field hamster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something like, else right. that needs help. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I'm on to my next tiny mammal. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be great. And then you can take what you've learned and apply it to something new and keep learning so like, it yeah. doesn't get boring either. Because right now with the pocket mice, there's still like so much to do that it's pretty exciting. But mm-hmm. you know, once they're pretty stable, it's like, great, you guys are good. <laughs> <laughs> and with little tiny mammals, I guess it doesn't get down to that absurd level where you're like extracting semen from them and you know oh it's been talked about really yeah i yeah. feel like at that point just cut your losses <laughs> like they're not meant to be that's where i me and my fracking guys where I, I lean more on that side of like it is a competitive world and if it takes us manipulating in that way right because then what so what if the next step is hey we found some biological material of this thing that's been extinct for like a hundred years yeah. what if we bring <clears throat> it back and start you know making that rewild it. Yeah. yeah are we playing god too much at that point because yeah. we're we're always what are we we're kind of like this thing that is creating this huge wake but then we're we're grabbing up all of our you know things we leave in our tracks behind us and trying to like reform it as if we were never there right no i think that's true and like that's something that i definitely think about like what is sort of the line that and i think for each person it's different but yeah there are people that are talking about like oh well if we can fill that sort of ecological niche we should do it and so you know, we could bring elephants to North America to like fill the role that the woolly mammoths played. And I'm like, that seems crazy. But some people think that that seems totally reasonable. Um, Or spending all of these resources bringing back species that have gone extinct, but we have like a tiny bit of their DNA frozen in ice. Yeah. I don't know if that's worth the resources. So I guess for me, yeah, it's like if it's still there and if it's potentially viable and we can see a way to make it better then those are the things that should have priority and like it's cool if you can have the science to resurrect extinct species but i'm not like i don't know if you put them back into the wild then what like you have a tiny population that now is super endangered that needs all of these resources but we also have these other ones that are in the same spot before they go extinct that we could be focusing on yeah to to give i mean that seems like a problem the people that have the biggest like connection to maybe nationalism why are we worried about these other countries we have people here and that's not entirely idiotic it's the same thing kind of with species of like yeah let's worry on these first right right yeah i i think that that's true i think that the nationalism is like a like goes a little bit further because then it's like well we don't need to protect all of the people in our country just the people that are like me yeah yeah, yeah. um and you know there are all of those like sort of repercussions about pulling out 
aid from other countries that I guess I mean I suppose that is sort of like with the with the animals but I don't know like bringing things back from extinction is kind of a crazy thing it does I mean it seems that way that I I guess I when I think of that I think of that equals cleaning up that debris behind us Mm -hmm. in our wake Mm -hmm. in a a tidy way that part of me kind of goes that'd be kind of neat what if this looked like we hadn't really been here in the way that we have even like certain green things like when I see wind turbines out Mm -hmm. in the wild it looks so gross to me I'm like god look at the landscape like your eyes are visually molested when you used to be able to look out and see like maybe something not that spectacular but at least just untapped nature and now it's just all these fans and in the future maybe we'll look back at that and be like god that was before we really figured out solar power and right. we did these giant things so anyway going on and on and like removing all this stuff then i wonder what would it look like if you weren't there like i think about that from say there was no comedy then no one would care like, <laughs> but it also it does add some levity or sometimes it, it connects back to like what it, that little kid part of you mm-hmm. and artists do that the people that take the most drugs and kind of reconnect with the interdimensional thing of like what existence might be and kind of remind the adults of that constantly like hey you're still a kid hey it's not all serious it's not all you gotta go to work and oh my god i gotta feed my family and uh, me and my fracking guys and our high blood pressure and but say that that did exist where it was just them what would happen would it just be sprawling cities and disgusting industrial waste or do you think it would balance out I think that it would be, right? Like, I think that sort of when there, the Industrial Revolution was going on, you know, if it is just pure capitalism, it's all about the bottom line. And who cares if the water is polluted and people are suffering? Like, if you can have cheap labor and sell your product, you're fine. Yeah. Um, and then it was people coming in that were like, no, this is a problem. We need to get this in check. That society really turned it around and it was like, we do care about clean drinking water and air that we can breathe. But that's not in the best interest of the company. Like, for them, I mean, it's just more of a cost to yeah. clean up your waste and limit your pollution. Um, and so I think that if that does go unchecked, it really is just going to be sort of like this <laughs> horrible dystopia. And so, yeah, I think that I think that if people didn't care, then it would be kind of a wasteland. I Yeah, I agree. The more I think about it, like what you guys are doing is just like the the artists kind of reminding but like there's this leading edge of humanity that is full speed ahead and spilling things into rivers and like but in the end result we have a combustion engine or we have factories right. or all these things mm-hmm. that we all go i mean we're doing a podcast we're speaking into stuff that was made from smelted metal right. and you know i mean it's certainly we take advantage of that and yeah. they go, how dare they so luckily there's this whole spectrum of people right. involved in it right so. yeah for sure and there's like you know I don't think that everyone needs to be doing research on endangered species in order to care about them or in order to like yeah. think about them or, you know, support legislation that supports them. I don't think that everyone needs to be doing the same thing. But like you said, there's a spectrum and people fall in different places on it. But yeah. Have you guys, when you're out there in the field, talked about maybe using a different sentence? Because um, I think probably the most oh, I'm busy right now sentence or eliciting sentence in the world is, hey, do you have a moment to talk about the environment? Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Has that ever worked? What's the next move there? Yeah, I my my 
like in college, I wanted a summer internship and Greenpeace came to my university <laughs> and I was like, oh, this sounds great. I really believe in a lot of these things. And so I ended up doing that for I think I lasted a week and a half. But yeah, it, it was not for me. I felt so miserable <laughs> doing that. It's just like constant rejection. No one wants to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, it was a weird job. Because it just feels so helpless. If they were like, hey, do you want to come on an expedition? If you just said that and people like, what do I have to do? Like, it's going to cost a little bit, right. but you get to spend a week doing this. And then you go, yeah, maybe. And you right. might sign up then. Yeah. But to say, do you have a moment for the environment? Like what? Well, give us all your information. Yeah. And then somehow that's going to translate into us doing so. It just seems so weird to me. It is really weird. It's also, <laughs> I don't mean this is horrible because I was asking people to sign up for it. It also felt weird to me that people were willing to write down their name, their address, their phone number, their credit card number, and just like give it to yeah. me. Who am I? Like, I'm just like a person with a clipboard. Like, don't give me your information. Like, this is crazy. Um, and then sign up for something where I'm going to like take money from your bank account every single month. Um, it's a It's a weird sort of system that is going on but I guess it's working like they have a lot of money <laughs> I know I wish what is but what would it be to like because people go out into nature like you talked about mm-hmm. like kids seeing it and cool but but then what like we also talked about with the desert like the things you don't see right and that's probably what's most at risk mm-hmm. so you say hey remember that scene when you were a kid that one thing isn't there anymore. And they go, I don't even remember that. Right. You know, if you said all the foxes are gone, people might really go, what? Yeah. But beyond that, people, eh, I guess I never really noticed them. So that's such an uphill battle. How do you get people aware of like, here's what's, if we just had a, a picture like that was the front page of Google every day and you started seeing lights blink out at, a, at the pace that was actually matching what's really happening in real time, would that get people excited? Yeah, I mean, that's a great idea. I think that we should totally try to get Google <laughs> to do that. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, yeah, there's sort of like the school of thought that personal connections is what's going to make people care. Um, but maybe understanding the actual scale of what's going on would make some people care. Mm-hmm. And I think that probably both of those things, if you have personal connections and then you see what sort of scale it's happening on, that yeah. would make, be a little bit more impactful. Yeah. I guess so. I'm trying to think like what I would do to, because at least yours, even with the mice, that is something you could bring into a classroom and be like, here, look at this little thing. But a lot of your colleagues, I'm guessing that were at that conference are like, oh, can I work with this little like tadpole thing? Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. Who's going to care about this? Right. And so part of it too is like the ecosystem services and what those organisms are doing for the environment that could benefit humans or could benefit other things that we care about Mm -hmm. and trying to figure that out and sort of pitch it in that way. Um, Also, I think that some people hopefully are believe in the value of like diversity. And so they care like, well, it's terrible if we are causing this species to go extinct, Mm -hmm. whether or not that species has an impact on my life. And so I think some people do kind of get on board with that idea too. Yeah. Do you, have you read the Unabomber's Manifesto? I have not. Most people that read it say, I have I have not read it, but uh, say that it, it really makes some decent points. And maybe if he hadn't attacked innocent people, say he was like, if he were still operating now and using drones and taking out like fracking sites or something, mm-hmm. or things that people could go, man, no humans were hurt. And that was dramatically like catastrophic to that specific right. entity. Who is this person? And maybe they have a good point that we've gotten like it's a tipping point that can't be, you know, the Mm -hmm. ink has been spilled. It can't go back in. But post-industrial revolution, 
we're managing this thing that is just constant entropy, right? Yeah. And we're trying to like, whoa, 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 don't, don't go there. And, and like the spilling, like it is ink and we're trying to save certain letters on the page right. or something. Yeah, yeah. I think that's sort of what Greenpeace is doing though when you're describing Sorry. it like that, where it's like they're trying to create a lot of like buzz around these different things just to bring awareness to it because you go oh I didn't know that they were cutting down these like major trees I didn't know people were still hunting whales in the ocean yeah um and so I think that that is that can be really successful um yeah and hopefully doing that without injuring people along the way is a good way to do it Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) but yeah I know just like I think cleaning up after ourselves and trying to protect what we can protect is Mm -hmm. from at least like a realistic point of view where we start with it. What do you do to take your mind off? I mean, it sounds like it doesn't bum you out that much. You just focus on the work. You're not thinking about the collateral effects of things that are impeding on this little group of mice that you're trying to help. Yeah, and I think that part of it is like, I feel like by focusing on the work, that's sort of the way that I don't get too bummed out because at least it's like, okay, I'm working towards something. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, it is pretty depressing when you do like... (laughs) <laughs> let it sort of all wash over you at the same time. Yeah. And depressing in what way? Like, what do you think? Do you think there's an end result to like where humanity's going? Like we're pushing toward VR and, and all these amazing AI sort of concepts mm-hmm. with technology. But by and large, the majority of people seem to be not thrilled about where it's headed and where they are within it. Yeah. I mean, you know, some people are thinking we're going to be in Mars in 20 years. Like, yeah. who knows what that looks like? Um, and I feel like where we are now is so different to where we were even 30 years ago that it, like, does look very different. I don't know. I don't know what it's going to look like <laughs> in terms of humanity. Um, I do know that we have so many people on our planet that we're not going to be able to kind of, like, continue moving along at the pace that we've been going without consequences to it. So it is a little bit scary to think in 20 years what's going to be happening. Like, Yeah, Yeah, to be on a world that has maybe 10 billion people Mm -hmm. on it and people just go, well, that's only a couple more billion. But you think of like the mass of that, of a couple more billion people. It's a really staggering concept. Yeah, it's a ton of people. And then we're all using so many resources. Yeah. And maybe we'll be at a point by then where it's somewhat renewable or more sustainable, or maybe we'll be the ones watching it all just go up. Right. What if the mice are the only ones standing at the end? That would be very ironic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so this is a question I've been asking lately, and um, I don't know if you listened to any of the episodes. You might have heard one. Okay. Um, But there's a button, and by pressing it, you take away all of humans off the planet. They don't feel anything, and they go wherever they go. Whatever that means, mm-hmm. whoever knows what's next, but that's just, that's it. Would you push that button? No. Not even, not even think about it. No, I don't, I wouldn't push the button. Like, I don't, I don't think that we need to wipe humans off the earth. I think that, I mean, there are a few different buttons I would push. We could <laughs> change people's minds or get them to be more aware. Yeah. Um, but certainly my goal is not like eradicate humans, save the mice. <laughs> <laughs> But when you're seeing, I I guess that that comes from one, largely humans either seem to be too happy and they're blissfully ignorant of all the effects of the things that their technology that they're filming themselves with at all time, where Mm -hmm. it comes from or the effects that it has on, you know, just everything, nature. 
or they're too sad, which means like, we don't even like being here. It's right. too much. It's too depressing. You got the fracking guys, you got all these racists, you got war and famine and just inequality and all that. And so it would seem like lost in all of that, the lack of appreciation for one or the other is that like the animals are like, dude, we just like being here, even though we don't even know that they do like it. Right. (laughs) I mean, I think that humans are pretty amazing in terms of what we've accomplished um, and what we can do and and where we're going. But yeah, yeah, I mean, it certainly is. I think that there are just like the 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 number of people is probably what's pushing on the environment more so than like us just being here. Yeah. So you think you would push it if it took away three billion people? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you could select some parameters for those. <laughs> That's well, genocide, lady. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's a really slippery slope. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that I think that if I could push it and there would be fewer people born into the future, how about that? Then maybe that's what I would do. <laughs> but that's also so bleak. Yeah, but like we don't we don't all need five kids, like true but i mean just slow down reproductive rates so you so that's kind of more in like the the china thing mm-hmm. where like once you right. have x amount then yeah you're done yeah and that like clearly was not a great policy for human rights yeah um it was good for the environment for china's development for a lot of things but like i i I definitely do think that like human rights are really important too, as well as I, and I imagine most people that care about welfare in general, like animal welfare, human welfare, Mm -hmm. those things may go hand in hand. Um, But I think that just from like a pure numbers perspective, it is sort of what a lot of us need to be doing is like slowing down our reproduction. Maybe we are as the United States, depending on where you live, if you live Mm -hmm. in a dense urban area, maybe you feel differently about the inherent freedoms that you are God-given birth rights, you know, mm-hmm. inherently yours just by being born on this soil, which people have. But if you're out in the middle of nowhere, or out in the open, you'd feel like I should. I'm here. I'm. I should have every right to like shoot my gun at stuff, ride my motorcycle mm-hmm. with no helmet, blast my music, do right. whatever I want. But then once you start seeing how many people your freedoms are kind of infringing upon even if that includes you having children. Right. Especially if you live in a dense urban area, you hear a loud motorcycle, like, well, I'd outlaw that immediately. <laughs> I, I'd get rid of that, get rid of fireworks. Get, you just start suddenly like, I want all these rights taken away because mm-hmm. now that's impeding on me. Right. That's infringing on what I want to do. And then we're all just this stewing pot of all of those things together. So yeah, I, I think you'd have a tough time. That's why I think the button is just all or nothing. Yeah, I think it has to be an all or nothing button, but yeah, I don't think I'd push it. All right. Okay. Yeah. Well, we kind of have a vague idea of where you want to be in the future, mm-hmm. which is having several nature preserves named after you. Yep. Yeah. And, and all of the animals in them. <laughs> <laughs> Every single Full one of, of them. fluorescent little tiny mammals. Yes. Yes. Oh, that'd be such a cool world. It sounds pretty great. <laughs> yeah. People would flock to take drugs there. I was like, it sounds like an acid drug. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be really fun. <laughs> um, and then where would you like to see like the average American student? Since we are recording this podcast in the United Mm -hmm. States, where would you like to see their awareness be in, say, 10 or 15 years? Do you just go into any fourth grade classroom? What do you want to see them have an awareness of that they maybe don't right now? I think that I think that to start with, like their local areas, what are the species that live around them? What are the things that are happening? Like get excited about sort of those local nature areas and more involved with that. And then that I think really 
translates to being interested and excited about wherever you are and so would travel with you like if you go to a new place then you're excited about those new things Mm -hmm. um and I think that some of that is lost even here where we have like in LA where it's so dense and urban but you can go 45 minutes away and have these deserts or go to the coast and have all those marine things um even to promote that more in the dense areas like look at what is on our edges like it's pretty exciting I love that. But I also, one caveat, and not to play the devil's advocate too much here, because I think that's a lovely thought, and I think it's totally attainable. And I think this is what I'm about to say is kind of an asinine thing to posit. But like we talked about with more um, growth upward Mm -hmm. from a city and this dystopian kind of, I think wage and wealth inequality might continue. Mm -hmm. And so if you're an impoverished person in the city, and cities grow up and it's, you don't see nature anywhere. Yeah. And then it's 45 minutes away to go see nature. When that person comes into your classroom, there's potential for you to go, I don't know what any animal is. And they go, well, just go out. It's 45 minutes away. And you go, my parents work all day, every day to barely have enough money for me to have clothes. I can't. That's true. And I think that that's actually already happening in places like L.A. If you come mm-hmm. from areas that are more urban that really don't have green spaces around them, then you don't have an opportunity to have that experience. I know that there's um, proposals for a park to be built on the east side of LA that would be sort of like rewilding the LA River. So it's bringing back natural habitat, kind of like getting out some of that concrete and letting it flow again. And then that sort of thing exposes people that live there. You don't have to go 45 minutes to the ocean or the um, the mountains or anything like it is there and it is accessible and I think that's really important too like yeah. let's bring back some of this um, habitat to our urban areas and there are a lot of animals that can be successful there like um, fish and birds that are still exciting to see and aren't pigeons right right like, yeah <laughs> that's frogs not the, little things that you yeah would, yeah right so I think that's a great thing too to be doing in more dense urban areas cool I like it well, I don't. I think I'm out of questions for you. I don't know right. if you have any closing thoughts or things you want to plug to mention. Um, I think that's kind of it. Yeah, <laughs> no I, real plugs. This was very enjoyable. Oh, I didn't even notice on your water bottle you have a little mouse. Oh, I do. I have a kangaroo rat on my water <laughs> bottle. The popcorn of the rodent world. <laughs> and there, the, is that the little one they kind of hop on their back they feet? They do. Yeah. Yeah. That's, okay. That thus the name kangaroo. Yeah. And well, they're related to the pocket mice. Ah, I was so glad you didn't say related to the kangaroo. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I did yeah. a little. Um, well, this Mojave Red was delightful. It was very good. Thanks for coming over and doing this. Yeah. And uh, come back anytime. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, thanks again to Rachel. I hope she'll come back when she's officially a doctor. And I um, hope the research continues to go well. Cool life. Getting to travel around and do those sort of experiments and and trapping those pocket mice. And anyway, thanks again. If you haven't had any of the Indian Wells beer, try to get your hands on it. It's all pretty good. And they they try some weird stuff also. I like it. Um, This show is unique in that we not only have a bit of correspondence, but two things. The first one is a tweet that uh, Bex sent which is at Becca Perlina. And she said, um, forgive me if you've answered this before, but are you an Incubus fan? The Space Cave theme song sounds like a lost track from science. It's dope. Well, first of all, I'm glad you like the track, the opening theme song. I also really like it. That was done by Rob Crow, not me. And I, in mentioning what it ideally would sound like, Incubus didn't come up. And I can't say as to whether Rob is or is not a fan my initial thinking is that he is not and probably has not heard any of their music. He's got pretty eccentric, eclectic taste. 
But um, I like Incubus. And one time I was in a convenience store and uh, my friend and I had walked down and he was trying to quit smoking. So he wanted to buy a bunch of candy. And I had jokingly said we should start calling ourselves the Candy Boys and do this uh, sketch series. I forget what it was about. We were both like kind of these Willy Wonka characters called the Candy Boys. And then he went, he put his candy up on the countertop and uh, the clerk said, wow, that's a lot of candy. And my friend said, yeah, we're the Candy Boys. And then a voice behind us laughed a little bit. There was someone you didn't even know was in the store with us. And I turned around and it was uh, Brandon, the lead singer from Incubus. And I was like, oh, hey, man, I like your stuff. And he was kind of caught off guard, like, oh, thanks. And then we zoomed on out of there and um, seemed like a pleasant experience for all around. He got to laugh at our silly little candy boys joke. And then he got told by a stranger that uh, someone out there appreciated his work. So, yeah, I like Incubus, okay? Uh, Thanks for asking and thanks for tweeting. I think that's the first Twitter interaction this show has ever had. Amazing. Oh, no, that's not true. I think I've reached out before and had people tweet in questions for guests. But this was the first sort of like, hey, I've got a question and I'm going to ask it just kind of out of the blue. The second bit of correspondence is um, from an email. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's very nice and complimentary of the show. But my favorite part says, it's one of the few creations out there that's really inspired me and has no has in no small part contributed me to go back to working in research. I start my new job as a lab manager in, in a genetics lab this Monday and will hopefully begin a PhD program next spring. How cool is that? I, I love that. I feel the fact that this show has had some small part in inspiring someone to get out there and, and live the life that maybe they've kept on the shelf a little bit feels great. That was from Ryan Custer, who's also uh, one of the newest Patreon subscribers. So thanks doubly to Ryan. It uh, really does help the show when you chip in a little bit. So I thoroughly appreciate it. Um, send you a little Space Cave sticker and some other little goodies and things like that a couple times a year. Plus, you get access to extended chats and bonus things and some behind-the-scenes stuff, etc. And uh, it just makes it a lot easier with hosting and file transferring and buying beer. And uh, hopefully, we'll eventually get it to a point where we can also um, compensate Dan a little bit for all of his work compiling the show every single week out of the goodness of his heart from down there in Australia. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to all of you for rating, subscribing, whatever else. You can email the show um, at pings at thespacecave.com, tweet space underscore cave. If you have music ideas, guest suggestions, topics, et cetera, et cetera, feel free to reach out. And thanks again to Bex and Ryan for doing just that. Let's get out of here. This is a song off the latest album. It came out, like I guess, almost a year ago now from Beach Fossils, who I like quite a bit. And uh, just a nice, pleasant, pleasant song. Hope you enjoy it as well. Have a good week. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave.
I don't think it is very useful to speculate on what God might or might not be able to do. Rather, we should examine what he actually does with the universe we live in. have been ordained by God, but it seems that he does not intervene in the universe to break the laws, at least, not once he had set the universe going.